Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Diplomatic History Channel here at New Books Network. I'm your host, Grant Golub. I am a PhD candidate in international history at the London School of Economics and an Ernest May Fellow in History and Policy uh, at the Harvard Kennedy School. I am joined today by two fantastic historians, David Painter and Greg Brew, to talk about their new book, The Struggle for Iran, Oil Autocracy and the Cold War, 1951 to 1954, which really tries to place um, Iran sort of within the midst of the raging cross currents of the early Cold War and really zooms in on the notorious August 1953 coup, which deposed the democratically elected um, Iranian leader, Mohammad Mosaddegh, and restored the Shah uh, to power, which really uh, forever changed Iranian history and changed um, the U.S. and British relationship with Iran and the Middle East. Uh, David is an associate professor emeritus of international history at at Georgetown University. Um, He's the author of numerous books and articles on Iran and oil and the global Cold War, um, including The Cold War, an international history of oil uh, and oil in the American century and the political economy of U.S. foreign oil policy. And Greg is the Henry A. Kissinger Postdoctoral Fellow in International Security Studies and the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale University. Greg is publishing two books at the same time. You have The Struggle for Iran, which <clears throat> excuse me, which uh, we're going to be talking about today. And he's also the author of another book called Petroleum in Progress, which was published with Cambridge University Press. And you can listen to another episode that I'll be doing with Greg um, to talk about more about that book in detail. So David and Greg, thank you for so much uh, for coming on the pod today. Thank you. Thanks, Grant. Um, so David, I want to start with you. And I was wondering if you could give our listeners some of the, the background um, to Iran's place in the international system um, in the first half of the 20th century. Um, give, give us a, a sort of a 30,000 foot overview of where Iran is um, in the Middle East and, and what's going on in Iran at this time. Well, actually, I think that's a better question for Greg. He's much more of a scholar of Iran in the Middle East. I'm a an oil guy. Uh, I would talk more about oil Iran after uh, 1945. So let's just push that over to Greg. He uh, yeah, Greg, go ahead. He drafted that chapter. <laughs> sure thing. Uh, thanks, Grant. Thanks, David. Uh, so in answer to your question, uh, first of all, the book. You know, it, as the title indicates, it really hones in on the nationalization crisis of 1951 to 1954. Uh, we do talk about the coup of, of August 53 in detail. There's a whole chapter devoted to the planning and execution of the coup, looking at the covert operations, Kermit Roosevelt, the CIA, the British, and uh, all of that. But the book itself is about much more than just the coup, um, or really just uh, much more uh, than the coup and the nationalization crisis. It tries to situate... Uh, the crisis in Iran within the context of the global Cold War, uh, within the context of the struggle for the struggle over natural resources in the global South in uh, the mid 20th century, 
It looks at the role of foreign oil companies, the creation of a global oil economy in the post-war period. Uh, it also looks at great detail at the state of the British Empire in the post-war period. Iran, the Iranian oil industry, was a crucial part of the British Empire. Iranian oil was a key ingredient in Britain's balance of payments. Uh, the maintenance of the British financial system, the British economy kind of rested on control over Iranian oil. So when Iran nationalizes its oil industry in 1951, it uh, causes an immediate international crisis that challenges the British status as a great power, that challenges British control, not only of Iranian oil, but to the kind of general British position in the Middle East at large. The nationalization crisis also challenges the control of Western oil corporations over the oil of the Middle East uh, and oil concessions elsewhere. Um, so Iran is kind of a key battleground uh, for the global Cold War and the struggle uh, over the sort of the future of the global uh, oil economy. Um, and to answer your question about where Iran is at this time, um, this is kind of the uh, if you if you take the global Cold War and the struggle for global oil as sort of the two big themes. Um, the third theme is the struggle for democracy and the political future of Iran itself. And when you look at the state of Iran in this period, Iran is in the midst of a struggle for its political future between the forces of autocracy and the forces of constitutional democracy. Uh, you have various internal factions vying for control of the government. You have the Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, who is very early in his reign, is uh, still somewhat untested as a leader, is grappling with various political factions, uh, trying to control the military, trying to control or influence the aristocracy. Uh, and then you have the National Front, Iran's constitutional democratic movement led by the constitutional Democrat Mohammad Mossadegh, uh, who leads the nationalization struggle, who becomes prime minister in 1951, is one of the most mythologized, uh, one of the most popular political figures in Iranian history, and who represents the hope, the desire for a secular, liberal, democratic government in Iran. So those are sort of the key themes, the key questions that this book addresses is how the nationalization crisis is a turning point in the global Cold War, how it's a, uh, a flashpoint in the struggle over the future of the global oil economy between national governments in the global South and foreign powers and foreign oil corporations, and also a flashpoint, a key turning point in the political history of Iran between the forces of autocracy and the proponents, the supporters for democracy and constitutional government. Uh, I would add that's why the title is the struggle for Iran. It's it's not there's several struggles going on. They're all interrelated and they affect each other. But it's you know it's it's not just a Cold War struggle. It's not just a struggle over oil. It's also uh, you know it's a st struggle for home rule or who would rule at home, uh, as people used to talk about the American Revolution. So it's there's a lot of struggles going on. And as Greg said, this covers a lot of of different aspects. Uh, uh, the oil economy, the Cold War, the U.S. Uh, we don't talk a lot about the Soviet Union. Um, the uh, fortunately for us, uh, there's a good some good work been done. F people finally got into some of the Stalin archives. Uh, I, you know, if this book had been written many years ago, the Soviet Union people would have focused more on it. But really, the, the Soviets are fairly confused uh, about what's going on. In, in Iran, uh, they rely a lot on the local party, the Tuta, uh, and which means that they are actually suspicious 
uh, of Mossadegh. They don't really come around to thinking, well, maybe this guy could help us out until July 1953, which is pretty late in the game. Um, and there's a lot of mythology about the Soviet role, uh, which is really quite minor. So, so Greg, can you can you give our listeners a bit of a ba- of the background of Iran? You know, sort of leading up to <clears throat> what's going on in Iran, really, in the, in the first half of the twentieth century. I mean, I think this kind of is the, the first chapter of the book. You know, between nineteen hundred and and you know the end of World War Two. What what are some of the big things that are sort of shaping Iran and and, and shaping the political landscape there? Sure. So, you know, Iran in the nineteenth century is. Uh, essentially ruled as an absolute monarchy. You have the Qajar Shah, who rules as the shadow of God on earth, is one of his titles. Um, and he is uh, an absolute monarch. He, he rules um, uh, by arbitrary means. Uh, in more practical terms, however, there is a sort of a delicate political balance between the monarchy, uh, factions of the uh, clergy, the Shia clerics, clerical class, the landed aristocracy, uh, what is occasionally referred to as the traditional middle class, the bazaar merchant class, uh, sort of the the key uh, managers of Iran's bazaar economy, um, which is still predominantly agricultural in the 19th and early 20th century. Iran does not industrialize until much, much later. Uh, and at the same time, a key aspect of Iran's internal political situation is the constant presence and interference by foreign powers. So what is sometimes colloquially referred to as the great game, this diplomatic geopolitical competition being waged between the Russian Empire and the British Empire in the 19th century. Much of the great game is played inside Iran, within Iran's political system. Both Britain and Russia vie for influence uh, in the court of the Qajar Shah. They bribe uh, political officials, they influence the government. There are a, a series of wars, uh, treaties in which Iran's territory is uh, decreased and diminished over time. And this creates the presence of foreign powers, creates a tremendous amount of discontent and, uh, and anger within Iran's political system by the end of the 19th century. There are a, a number of key flashpoints. The uh, tobacco protests of the early 1890s is often ref- often uh, you know pointed to as a, a key moment where Iran's political classes mobilize against the presence of foreign powers, foreign interference in Iran's economy, uh, and also the status of the Qajar Shah as an arbitrary monarch. Um, so there is growing political discontent towards the end of the 19th century that billows into full revolution in 1906, uh, in what is referred to as the Constitutional Revolution of Iran, in which you know various political factions coalesce, force the Shah to sign Iran's first constitution in 1906. This constitution creates an elected assembly, a parliament or majlis, uh, as it's referred to. Uh, it sort of demarcates the Shah's power. It reduces the Shah to a constitutional monarch, albeit one with somewhat vague powers. <laughs> uh, that becomes a very important aspect of the book. Um, as the Shah's constitutional status occasionally clashes with his control of the military or his influence over the political system. But the Constitutional Revolution of 1906 to 1911 uh, changes the course of Iran's political uh, trajectory uh, because it brings in the forces of democracy, it brings in the forces of constitutionalism, uh, it creates an elected assembly, the Majlis, in which political issues can be hashed out. But at the same time, it doesn't really resolve the presence, the influence and interference of foreign powers 
right? The British and the Russians continue to interfere in Iran's political system. The revolution ends with a fairly unstable constitutional government uh, where prime ministers are constantly being elected and resigning and then elected again. Uh, there's a, a tremendous turnover in cabinets. Uh, the Qajar Shah by the 1920s has become a very weak ruler. Uh, and this produces the uh, first major coup of the 20th century in Iran in 1921, where a military leader named uh, Reza Khan uh, seizes control over Iran's government in February of 1921. He takes over the government, he sidelines the Khazar Shah and the Majlis, and several years later, he crowns himself Reza Pahlavi I. Um, he becomes the, the founder of the Pahlavi dynasty. Uh, he's referred to as Reza Shah, generally. Uh, he is, if you like, the father of modern Iran. He creates the modern Iranian state. He creates the modern Iranian military. He uh, he pushes through a number of very important sort of secularizing, modernizing reforms. He creates Iran's educational system, its first legal code in the 1920s and 30s. Um, and he's the father of Mohammad Reza Shah, you know, the Shah, the, the figure with which, you know, many readers and listeners will be familiar with this sort of key figure of uh, 20th century international history. Uh, but his father, Reza Shah, is really the one who, who gets the dynasty started. At the same time, and this is an important element of the book, you have the creation and the consolidation and the growth of Iran's oil industry, which is owned and operated by the Anglo-Iranian oil company, AIOC, a British oil company. The British are the ones who discover oil. As I mentioned before, the British and the Russians both have tremendous influence and power within Iran. They interfere in its internal political system. The British discover Iran, uh, oil in Iran in the early 20th century. They sign a, uh, a concession, an agreement with the Khazar Shah, which gives them sweeping powers over uh, the production, the transportation, the exploitation, and the sale of oil. So over the course of the first half of the 20th century, the British, through the British oil company, through AIOC, develop Iran's domestic indigenous oil industry as a British enclave, as an enclave of British colonial power, right? The oil city of Abadan, the great refinery city that by 1951 is the world's largest refinery, is located in southwestern Iran in the province of Khuzestan. And it's run as a British company town, right? It's run as an enclave of British colonial power inside Iran. Iran itself is never a colony of the British Empire. But I would argue that Abadan and the oil fields are part of the British Empire in a de facto sense. And this, just like the tobacco protests of the 19th century, just like the interference of the Russians and the British, this the presence of a foreign enclave inside Iran, the control of the British over Iran's oil industry, creates a tremendous amount of animosity and anger and discontent among Iranians, among poli politically active Iranians in the middle class, um, but even among sort of the urban, uh, the urban population, the uh, Iran's sort of uh, urban masses. And uh, to sort of speed along, because <laughs> I re realize I've been talking for a while, uh, when we get to the nationalization crisis 1951, you've had the war, World War II, where Iran is occupied, where Reza Shah is thrown out of power, replaced by his son, Mohammad Reza Shah. Um, you have growing discontent, growing anger over the presence of the British, the control of the British over Iran's oil industry. Um, you have a fairly weak government led by Mohammad Reza Shah, Reza Shah's son. And you have this blossoming, really, this uh, burgeoning uh, political awakening within Iran, dozens of newspapers being published. The Majlis is this sort of 
uh, hotbed of political activity. You have a variety of different political factions. It's really the moment in Iran's history where liberal democracy is allowed to operate kind of for the first and really only time. Um, uh, albeit still in kind of a narrow sense. So this is the condition. These are the conditions that create the nationalization crisis. These are the conditions that lead to the uh, the rise of Mohammad Mossadegh as a political leader inside Iran. Uh, and it's the, the, it's the conditions which lead Mossadegh to nationalize the oil industry in 1951, something that Iranians had been increasingly demanding over the course of several years in response to the influence, the power that the British seemed to exercise over Iran's internal system. So, you you know, you have it all. You have the Cold War. <laughs> the Soviets are there. The, the British and the Americans are concerned about losing Iran to communism because they're not, not only they're concerned about the strategic problems that that would cause, but they're also concerned about losing Iranian oil uh, and the oil of the Middle East to Soviet control. You have the presence of a major British oil company, AIOC, which incidentally later changes its name to BP. So it's a company that's still around today. Uh, and you have the internal political struggle inside Iran between the forces of democracy, liberal constitutionalism that had arised from the 1906 constitutional revolution on the one hand, and on the other hand, the Shah, the monarchy, institutions which are leading Iran or pushing Iran more towards autocracy, authoritarian rule. That's the struggle happening inside Iran's political system, matching the struggle that is happening to control Iran's oil and the future of Iran's status uh, within the global Cold War. David, I was wondering if you could talk to us about how oil is, you know, really emerging as, as a key resource in the Cold War competition between East and West and sort of talk about oil's role in the burgeoning Cold War competition. Yeah, that's that's often misunderstood when people talk about the U.S. and especially U.S. and Middle East oil. They, they seem to think it's the U.S. is trying to get Middle East oil for its own domestic economy. But role of Middle East oil and the U.S. from the U.S. standpoint, that's oil for Western Europe. That's oil for Japan. That's oil to build up a coalition against the Soviet Union. Uh, the U.S. doesn't need it. And there's also a tension within the U.S. between the independent oil companies who are based mostly in the United States and the major oil companies, the five U.S. Uh, majors that are part of the famous Seven Sisters, the seven great international oil companies, they're much more interested in global markets. So oil is, uh, you know, oil was key to victory, I would say, in World War II. Uh, uh, all your major weapons platforms are oil powered. People write about our power winning the war. Well, airplanes don't go anywhere without oil. Uh, the, the navies have pretty much been converted from coal to oil, especially submarines. Uh, armor. Uh, you know, so oil has become crucial to military power. It's also becoming, the U.S. leads the way, it's also becoming more and more crucial to economic power. Uh, the U.S. is, as I say, maybe on the eve of World War II, oil is about 30%. Uh, coal is still dominant, but after World War II, oil uh, moves ahead of coal. And during the 1950s and 60s, oil displaces doesn't really displace. It, uh, oil becomes more important. Uh, oil consumption becomes more important in, in Western Europe and Japan and becomes crucial to their economies. When I say it doesn't displace coal, people still use a lot of coal. People still use a lot of coal today. It's added on to coal consumption. Uh, and, it, you know, it, in certain parts of the economy, you can't, you don't have coal-powered airplanes. Um, uh, it, oil is... Uh, 
very crucial. So, you know, this is seen as part of not only as military power, it's become it becomes crucial to economic reconstruction and Western Europe and Japan, and of course, economic reconstruction and Western orientation uh, of uh, Western Europe and Japan are crucial to uh, U.S. power and in uh, the Cold War. So oil is, is very important. Now, Iran, Iranian oil is very important on its own, especially to Britain and the British balance of payments. But Iran as a country uh, is very important strategically as a buffer zone, a block of very rugged terrain between the Soviet Union and the other oil fields in the Middle East, especially uh, in Saudi Arabia, which is controlled entirely by U.S. companies. But also you have Kuwait uh, and Iraq. So, you know, oil is is, um, all the studies at the time uh, talk about uh, how oil, if there's a war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, Control of Middle East oil will be lost, but you know, losing control in the sense of the Soviets take if the Soviets took it over, they would have oil and also de- uh, deprive the West of the oil. Uh, but the Soviets really, you know, all this concern about the Soviets getting control of the you know, you can the oil in Iran is in the southern part of the country. And for the be useful, the Soviets, they've got to get it to the Soviet Union. So transportation becomes a huge problem. So oil, oil in Iran uh, is important, but Iran is important beyond the oil. Iran would have been a Cold War flashpoint without, if it itself did not have oil. Now, obviously, it is in relation to the rest of the oil as well as its own oil. So, um, yeah, it, it's all sort of wrapped in together. But uh, the point I would try to make is that you have to see oil's role in a emerging global economy. Uh, it's becoming crucial to military power. It's already crucial to military power. It's becoming crucial to economic prosperity uh, and in good parts of the world. And so losing control uh, of that oil, losing access, is seen as a very dangerous thing. Now, the key is, there are many different ways to have access to the oil. You don't doesn't have to be through uh, Anglo-Iranian oil company. Uh, it doesn't have to be through Aramco in Saudi Arabia. And all of this is also premised on increasing only on the supply side, that oil consumption will continue to increase and people neglect uh, conservation. And of course, they don't even except for a few, very few people, they don't even think about the environmental consequences of increased oil consumption. Though you would have to say that increased oil consumption, if it actually displaced coal, is probably good for the environment. So, so Greg, what are, what are some of the ways that democratic forces in Iran, which are really sort of emerging in the wake of World War II, what are some of the ways that they're trying to actually establish real domestic control over Iran's oil industry leading up to the rise of Mohammad Mosaddegh as the Iranian prime minister? Sure. So something that the book touches on, uh, and that's also described in my book, is uh, what kind of debate, what kind of struggle had there been before the war? And, you know, the British oil company was present in the early 20th century. By the late 1920s, the industry is up and running. It's producing oil in large commercial volumes. Um, The British company is obliged to share a segment of their profits with the Iranian government, according to the original 1901 
concession, uh, what's known as the Darcy concession, which is the original sort of documentary agreement between the British and the Iranians. Um, But the Darcy concession is pretty lopsided. Uh, It's also very vague. (laughs) So the British don't really share a whole lot of the wealth with Iran originally. And this uh, irritates, this frustrates uh, Reza Shah. uh, And he pushes the British towards signing a new agreement. There's a series of negotiations in the 1920s. Eventually, Reza Reza Shah uh, gets fed up with the British, and he cancels the Darcy concession in 1932. to which the British respond with, you know, more negotiations. They put some pressure on Reza Shah. Eventually, he agrees to a new concession in 1933, uh, which allows the British uh, a little bit more leeway while also allowing uh, Reza Shah slightly greater access to the oil revenues. So between 1933 and the post-war period, the British are paying Iran every year. They're paying royalties um, based on the production of oil that they're pulling out of the country. Uh, but as far as the distribution of wealth, as far as the distribution of profits emerging from Iranian oil, very little of it is ending up in the hands of Iran's government. Very little of it is trickling down, if you like, to the Iranian people. And that's really the focal point uh, for um, the nationalization movement, uh, which is eventually led by Mossadegh, but which has its origins in this somewhat earlier period, there are various advocates for you know taking control of the British company, pushing them out, seizing control of the industry. And in the late 1940s, when uh, Mossadegh organizes what's known as the National Front, which is a coalition of various figures, various groups um, around himself as their leader and around the issue of of uh, you know challenging the British position in Iran. They meet, they have a meeting. Uh, Mossadegh is a lawyer. (laughs) He's uh, got a PhD from law, uh, in law from a a university in Switzerland. His closest associates, his closest advisors, most of them are lawyers. Most of them are trained lawyers. And they meet and they decide, you know, the best strategy we have uh, to challenge the British is to nationalize the industry, right? Nationalization is accepted in international law, provided that you pay compensation, this is a crucial issue in the book that the book just, uh, explores in tremendous detail is what compensation meant, how much it should be, and how it should be paid. But at the beginning, uh, in the late 40s, Mossadegh and the leaders of the National Front understood that they there was legal precedent for a government like Iran to nationalize an industry, a foreign-owned industry, uh, uh, like the British oil industry in Iran. So they understood what they were doing. They knew why they wanted to do it. They wanted to seize control of Iran's most valuable resource, to take control of the oil, to take control of the oil wealth, to ensure that it was being distributed to the nation and people of Iran and not to a British company, not to the government of Great Britain. Um, And they knew how they wanted to do it. What they didn't really count on (laughs) was that this would cause an international crisis that would pull in the United States and that the United States would largely side uh, on the British side and that Iran would be isolated from the international oil economy, that uh, after nationalization, Iran wouldn't be able to sell any of its oil. Um, That was something that they didn't quite anticipate. Um, But the nationalization movement, it coalesces, it it grows from this earlier period, it grows out of the interests of uh, the national front, and it comes from really decades of uh, domestic Iranian opposition and anger and discontent with the amount of foreign influence that is present within the country, right? It's when it's it's often argued that nationalization was a political campaign first and an economic campaign second. And that really is accurate. Mossadegh's main objective was kicking the British out of Iran 
and allowing Iran to thrive as an independent nation. Linked to that desire was also his desire that Iran should be governed as a constitutional monarchy, that the Shah should reign but not rule, that the power should be vested in the majlis, should be vested in the people, Iran's representatives, democratically elected representatives, that this was the way forward, uh, and that it should have the power to control its own oil industry and at the same time remain neutral within the global Cold War. Mossadegh was in many ways uh, an antecedent, or if you like, a contemporary of leaders who would become key figures in the non-aligned movement. You know, in, uh, leaders such as Nasser or Nehru uh, looked to the legacy of Mossadegh when they were sort of organizing the, the, the third way or the, the non-aligned movement of the Cold War. Mossadegh didn't want Iran to become embroiled in the geopolitical competition between the Soviet Union and the United States. He wanted Iran to sort of stand on its own, to have its own uh, independent foreign policy. Um, so oil was wrapped up in this domestic dispute, in this domestic struggle uh, for the political future of Iran, in the struggle between Iran and foreign powers, and uh, in Iran's status, its place within the global Cold War. David, w- w- when the Mossadegh government decides to nationalize the oil industry, what, what is the Western reaction to that at first? Well, the British don't refuse to recognize it. They, they claim that there's a provision in the concession agreement that says any disagreements will be settled by arbitration, that Iran gives up the right to nationalize. Uh, the United States takes a different uh, point of view. The United States uh, recognizes the right of other countries to nationalize, provided they play prompt and adequate compensation. Now, the U.S., <laughs> Uh, which, of course, if you could pay prompt and adequate compensation, you wouldn't need to nationalize. You would be making enough money. So that's that's sort of a catch-22. The U.S. is very concerned from the beginning. Uh, and there's a statement by Paul Nitza uh, uh, at, uh, later at the so-called Princeton seminars when Truman administration officials gathered in Princeton sort of talked about what they had done. This is the 19, uh, right after they left office. Uh, he says, you know, we, we were determined that nationalization uh, would fail. Now, what he meant was real nationalization that would give control of oil to Iran. The United States uh, recognized right away that you couldn't come right out and say, you can't do this. The British... Uh, were pretty arrogant the way they did it and said, you can't do it. You don't, you haven't read, you're breaking your agreements and all this. Uh, the Americans recognized right away, you'd have to come as uh, George McGee, who was assistant secretary of state uh, for near Eastern affairs said, you have to have at least recognize a veneer uh, of nationalization. It has to look like, you know, you have to recognize that they've taken over and then, you work out the details that leave it in the control of the British, of the Anglo-Iranian oil company. So it's, you know, nationalization in the sense of losing control, that's seen as a, uh, that's a non-starter for the U.S. as well as for the British, but the tactics uh, are very different. The United States is very concerned um, not to push the Iranians too far. The other thing that that sometimes gets left out, this is right in the middle of the Korean War when the British sent a delegation to the United States in April 1951. I remember I was going to check the newspapers and see the coverage of the talks. What did the newspapers cover in April in the United States cover in April 1951? MacArthur's testimony before Congress. 
Uh, so, you know, putting this in a, a context, the U.S. is very concerned. Uh, they don't want another war right now. Now, the U.S. is also in the midst of a big buildup. And over time, uh, with the change in the balance of power, the U.S. buildup and the dying down of the war in Korea, U.S. becomes more and more capable of intervening, uh, less and less concerned about losing Iran in case there's a, you know, a clash between the British and the Iranians. So, you know, that, that Cold War background, the balance of power background is very important. It's often left out uh, the way the U.S. reacts. The U.S. is being very cautious. Let's look into this in a much broader sense. The British are looking at it very narrowly. This is important to their balance of payments. I, um, I had a, a great quote from uh, one of the British uh, foreign office people that Abaddon, the loss of Abaddon, that was the real end of the, of the empire, not the loss of India, but Abaddon, because as, as Greg pointed out earlier, the British plan to maintain their role as a great power was heavily dependent on the earnings from the Middle East oil industry. Uh, this would maintain sterling as an international reserve currency, would na- ma- give the British time to reorganize their empire. And losing that uh, was seen as a very, uh, a, you know, a potentially fatal blow. And so they really had to keep, figure out a way to keep their Americans, if not on their side, they, they often talk about keeping the Americans in play, doing just enough to keep uh, the Americans uh, backing them, uh, but while they're working behind the scenes to undercut uh, Mossadegh. And I would chime in just there um, to add the British and the American governments viewed the political situation in Iran differently and had different perspectives. The British, as I mentioned before, the British had been active in Iran for decades. They had been you know, bribing officials. They'd been tampering with elections. They'd been interfering in the makeup of cabinets. They had invaded Iran on various occasions. They obviously had managed their oil enclave in Abadan for quite a while. So the British had this sort of this decades long relationship. They had dedicated officers who had studied Iran. They generally had more uh, uh, regional experts who spoke Farsi, who had regional contacts. They had this great intelligence network inside Iran that they could draw on. And this led them to a conclusion, generally, that Mossadegh, Mossadegh becomes prime minister in April 51. He nationalizes the oil industry. And from the outset, the British attitude was, if we pressure Mossadegh, if we squeeze him, if we keep nationalization from succeeding, then eventually our supporters, our friends inside Iran or Mossadegh's opponents will remove him from power, that eventually he will fall, that his government is a weak one, and that that will allow a more British-friendly cabinet, a more British-friendly prime minister to come to power. This new figure will make a deal with us that will allow us to continue our control of Iranian oil, and that's how we win. That's how we escape and end this crisis. That was generally the British approach. Um, The Americans are looking at things very differently. The Americans see Iran as teetering on the edge of collapse. Uh, They see the other political factions inside Iran, particularly those affiliated with the British, they see these factions as very weak, uh, as mostly corrupt. Um, They generally view the Shah, they they view him somewhat favorably uh, as a, you know, as a potential figure to lead Iran as as an institution, they're quite friendly towards the monarchy. But the Shah himself, Mohammad Reza Shah, 
they see as indecisive, weak-willed, unable to act, a poor leader. So when Mossadegh arises, when the National Front you know, takes control of the government, when nationalization takes place, the American consensus, the American conclusion is generally, we don't like Mossadegh and we don't want nationalization to work, but we worry what will happen if Mossadegh falls from power. We worry that this will create an opening for Iran's communists, the Tuda party, or some other faction to take control. We worry what this will do to Iran internally. So generally, the American position was, rather than push Mossadegh out, Let's find a way to resolve the nationalization crisis. Let's find a way to keep the flow of oil revenues going to maintain Iran's economy, to maintain Iran's finances. We will do what we can to work with Mossadegh or find some way to replace him without causing an internal political crisis. And the British approach was often very frustrating, was often very, very uh, irritating to American officials. You know, David and I have lots and lots of quotes from Americans expressing their frustration with the British approach to the problem. But in the end, you know, the U.S. end up taking the British position. In the end, the British campaign of keeping the Americans in play, of keeping the crisis uh, going without yielding to the uh, Iranian nationalization attempt, and eventually getting the Americans on their side to remove Mossadegh from power, eventually that works. Uh, so it is important, and it's important, as David mentions, to look at this over the course of these years. You know, the American position at the beginning of the crisis is quite different from the American position by early 1953. And it's not just the change in administration, right? The Truman administration leaves office in January of 53, is replaced by the Eisenhower administration. It's the Eisenhower administration that makes the decision uh, to launch the coup in 53. Uh, and we get into the details as to why that happens. But the American position on the crisis and the American position in the global Cold War changes over the course of these years. So why, why, why was the U.S. so concerned? I was wondering if we can unpack that a little more, Greg. Why was the U.S. so concerned about this idea that Iran was on the, you know, on the brink of collapse or sort of, you know, teetering on the edge? I know that you've written about this elsewhere, but I think it really sounds like it really plays a really key element in American thinking towards Iran and towards the nationalization crisis. So why don't you unpack that for a little bit and really what's informing this this U.S. viewpoint? Sure. So, you know, the fir- first off, Iran's location. Uh, it shares a 1,400, 1,500-mile-long border with the Soviet Union. It's right there on the southern uh, border of the Soviet Union. So strategically, geographically, Iran is important. Um, Iran is viewed by Americans broadly and by the U.S. government specifically as a country with fairly weak and unstable domestic political institutions. Uh, The government that is essentially created by Reza Shah, the modern institutions such as the military, the bureaucracy, uh, which are created in the 20s and 30s, are shattered by the Anglo-Soviet invasion of 1941, Uh, The country is under Anglo-Soviet occupation from 1941 until early 1946. Uh, The institutions, the modern institutions of state are weakened during this time and rebuilt only slowly. Uh, As I mentioned before, domestically, the political scene of Iran appears from an American point of view to be very chaotic. There's a rapid turnover of government. There's a new prime minister every few months. Uh, The Shah, the young Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, he's in his 20s. He doesn't seem to have the experience or indeed the ability to exert control over the government. Um, It very often seems to me, at least, that the Americans really want some kind of strong man to appear to take over. Uh, They support various figures uh, uh, in place of the Shah, particularly Prime Minister 
um, Ali Razmara, who is prime minister right before the nationalization crisis breaks out, who's assassinated in March of 51. Uh, the book talks a little bit about uh, the Razmara government. Um, so the Americans want some way to stabilize Iran because they view it as weak internally, pressured from the outside by the Soviets, pressured internally by the presence of this uh, political struggle. And then finally, linked to the Soviet threat, Iran has a fairly large and fairly well-organized domestic communist organization, the Tuda Party. The Tuda is uh, created in the 1940s, the early 1940s. It's led by a group of political prisoners uh, who are released from Reza Shah's uh, prisons in the aftermath of the Anglo-Soviet invasion of 1941. Uh, the Tuda Party is made up of, you know, sort of the usual suspects <laughs> of, uh, uh, you know, nationalists, intellectuals, journalists, writers, political leaders, labor organizers. Um, by 1946, the Tuda Party is openly aligning with the Soviet Union, receiving support from the Soviets. Uh, 46 is really its apex. Um, a few Tuda leaders are offered cabinet positions in the Iranian government for several months. The Tuda Party leads uh, a mass strike in the British oil fields in Abadan in 1946. There is shortly thereafter a major uh, uh, clampdown, a major crackdown on Tuda activity by the Shah's government and by uh, uh, his prime minister at the time. But in 1951, when nationalization happens, the Tuda is fairly active, uh, has somewhere between somewhere around 10,000 members, a few thousand more uh, additional supporters. The, the Americans are kind of always a little vague about how many members are actually in the Tuda party. Uh, but from the U.S. point of view, the presence of this communist organization, the fact that it's fairly well organized, that it's funded and supported by the Soviet Union, that other than Mossadegh's National Front, the Tuda party appears to be the only other organized political organization in the country. So from the point of view of you know what I've turned termed the collapse narrative, the creation within the U.S. government of this idea of Iran's collapse due to internal political instability, were the Mossadegh government to fall, the most likely force to fill the vacuum from the U.S. point of view was the Tuda party. So this was obviously something that the United States did not want to have happen because Iran was strategically important because of its oil resources, because of its location by the Soviet Union, but also because were Iran to fall to communism, that would threaten other countries in the region that have, you know, oil resources of their own. You know, if Iran were to, this is early domino theory. If Iran falls to communism, what happens in Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia? This is the key U.S. This is one of the key U.S. concerns. So this fear of collapse is linked, is sort of originates from the particular American perspective of Iran's political status, of its sort of recent history. Um, there are fears that its economy, that its financial system cannot function without the flow of oil revenues uh, that were originally produced by the British oil company that the Americans believe can only be produced or maintained if international corporations maintain their control over Iran's oil industry. There's this fear that, well, if the, Iran's take, if the Iranians take over their oil industry, are they going to be able to produce enough money to support their government? Right? That was an American concern. Right, We can't let the Iranians run their own oil industry because that wouldn't, that wouldn't, in our view, maintain their economy, wouldn't maintain their financial system. That would lead to collapse. So there's a number of different aspects. There's a number of different points of view that are combining to create this vision, this, this perspective from the Americans that 
I argue, we argue in the book, I argue in my other book, that is crucial to understanding the ways that the U.S. government approaches the nationalization crisis. It's also crucial to understanding why the U.S. government decides to overthrow Mossadegh in 1953. As we mentioned before, the British were always focused on getting rid of Mossadegh. That's kind of what they always wanted to do. The U.S. government doesn't initially take that position. It waffles back and forth, but it finally takes that stance in 53 for reasons linked to this fear of Iran's internal collapse. So, David, you know, getting sort of moving ahead now in the nationalization crisis, you know, there comes a point, I, I believe, in the summer of 1952 when Mossadegh resigns, right? And I was wondering if you could talk to us about how the the crisis over oil and over nationalization is impacting the domestic power struggles between Mossadegh and his allies and and, and the Shah and, and those who are opposed to Mossadegh's consolidation of power within Iran. Yes, you know, the crisis in July uh, 1952 is often ignored. It's it's, it's in, incredibly important. It, it distinguishes between the first Mossadegh government before that and the second government uh, afterwards. Uh, at the time, uh, it, it seemed like, uh, you know, that it was a great defeat for the Shah, for the British, uh, the British uh, charge there, George Middleton, who they don't, the ambassador's not there. Middleton's really running things. Says the only thing that can save the situation is a coup. You know, he writes this flat out in the dispatch. Uh, he can't say this to the Americans, however, uh, at least to the State Department. But this, you know, this grows out of... Uh, the struggle within Iran, the, Mossadegh resigned over control of the Ministry of Defense, the Shah's power. Shah was basically, his power was based on the military. Uh, military officers swore allegiance to the Shah rather than to the Constitution. Uh, he appointed the Minister of Defense. Uh, and, and Mossadegh says that's not the way it's supposed to work in a parliamentary system. That should be There should be civilian control of the military. And Mossadegh resigns over this. And there's a lot of controversy. Did he do this as part of a ploy to put pressure on the Shah? Did he catch the Shah uh, by uh, surprise? He certainly seemed to catch the Americans and the British by surprise because they were planning and putting pressure on the Shah to uh, appoint this elder statesman, uh, Quavam, as prime minister, and you know the one of the memoirs with the MI6 guy says, "Oh, we we worked behind this. In fact, I was out trout fishing with my American counterparts. We were caught. Yeah, they were caught by surprise, not because they they it was they messed up their schedule for replacing Mossadegh. And you know this is also the time when the Tuda joined the National Front in massive demonstrations in Tehran that forces the Shah." To, who is appointed Quavam prime minister, forces uh, the Shah forces him to resign and reappoints uh, Mossadegh in July. So this is a huge uh, turning point. It's also you know that that the control of the street. I had a, a couple of interviews with the, I would say the main CIA guy involved in Iran first in. Uh, Tehran, and then later in charge of uh, during the coup in in the in, in uh, based in the U.S. and the way he looked at it is control of the street. Who had a street organization who could bring out demonstrators and put pressure on the Majlis? You know, the Mossadegh never had a majority in the Majlis, but he had his group of people, and most of the people in the Majlis were sort of independent operators, and they could be 
influenced heavily uh, by public opinion as uh, as uh, as you would say by the people in the street. The, the Tuta could bring people out. Uh, Ayatollah Kashani could bring people out. He's a semi-member of the National Front. Uh, and so, you know, he, his point of view was when the Tuta becomes backing Mossadegh, Mossadegh is, he, you know, he's going to be dependent on their street organization and eventually he's going to be, become dependent on him or they will replace him. Uh, and, you know, one of the things the U.S. was worried about is that they didn't think maybe that the Tuta would come into power immediately. They thought maybe Kashani would come to power and he would be such a disaster that he either he would run the economy into the ground or cause chaos or make a deal with the Tuta to try to stay in power. So it was sort of a transitional process. And Greg has, has really laid this out in his, his brilliant article about the collapse narrative. And, you know, the way the U.S. put together um, its understanding of Iran based on certain assumptions uh, may, that may or not have been true, certain, in some cases, self-serving assumptions about what the Iranians could do and could not do. But, you know, if the Iranians succeeded, it was a disaster for the West and the U.S. And if the Iranians failed, you know, nationalization failed, it was a disaster. So in that sense, the way they framed the problem, uh, there was no way that they, you know, could win, uh, that Mossadegh could win, that he would be a disaster if he succeeded, he would be a disaster uh, if he failed. Uh, but, you know, this 21 thing is very, very important. This is when the, the British uh, start... Uh, working, trying to influence the CIA. They, they know they can't really get through to the through the Truman administration. They start talking to people in the CIA. They actually admit, and uh, again, uh, the MI6 head admits, uh, and Iran admits in his memoirs, we decided to change the way uh, we were selling this to the Americans. Instead of emphasizing the oil industry, we'd emphasize the threat of communism, that Mossadegh stays in power this will lead to communist control. So this is a turning point there. It's a turning point between Mossadegh and Kashani, because Mossadegh, the second Mossadegh administration, wants a lot more reforms. Kashani does not want these reforms. Uh, and they eventually break uh, in January 1953, uh, which, of course, scares the CIA, because that means Mossadegh's only street organization is the Tuta, and he doesn't actually control them. They're afraid that the Tudor will eventually control Mossadegh. The other thing that's, uh, that uh, comes up there in the U.S. decision is the Shah. The Shah, the, everybody said, oh, the Shah is weak. He can't make a decision. The Shah was being very careful. I mean, his father had been overthrown by the, by the British. He, has, he doesn't want to be overthrown. He's not going to make a move until he's sure he can win. So part of the, the British... And eventually the CIA plan was to convince the Shah that he had to act. They, you know, they, 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 want, they have to convince the Shah, they have to convince the Americans, and the Americans won't go without the Shah. And the Shah, he's very, very careful. <laughs> you know, they have to send a lot of people to Iran to try to convince him. And he's so careful, you know, he doesn't hang around for the coup. He, he you know... <laughs> First, he's in his estates uh, on the Caspian, and then he flies to Baghdad, and that's and then he said, "Well, that's not far enough away." And then he goes to Rome. Uh, so, I mean, but you know, I, I I'm not I don't 
I'm sympathetic in the sense that to the criticism of the Shah, he's being careful because he knows uh, if he makes a mistake, he's out. Uh, if he makes a mistake and he's there, it could be worse than just out. Yeah, he has uh, the most to lose. I mean, of he has the most any individual lose. in Iran's political system, he has the most to lose. Yeah. And he's, you know, you know, okay, the coup succeeded. You know, if you were betting on this beforehand, I mean, you know, it, it, there was a lot of uh, contingency, a lot of luck uh, with the way the coup unfolded. A lot of things could have gone differently uh, and gone uh, very much uh, in a different direction. So the, the Shah, you know, the Shah that you see afterwards, and of course this shows up in a lot of the assessments, Shah is a changed man after the coup. All of a sudden he is making all these decisions. Well, now he's in power. He's not worried about, he knows the Americans will back him. He's not going to worry about the British. He never really trusts the British. Um, he doesn't have to worry about them anymore. And, you know, there's a huge crackdown on, on the opposition after the coup. Um, lots of people uh, put in prison camps. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot going on. But the Shah is an interesting character. You know, that decision is they have to force him to decide uh, as well as uh, the British have to convince him and some of the opposition within Iran has to convince the Shah as well as convince the Americans that they have to take action and help them. They actually say, we can't do this without your aid to remove Mossadegh. So, yeah, go ahead. I will chime in really quickly. Um, sorry to cut you off, Grant. Um, I'll, I'll just say this. Um, because I want to make sure I mention it. There are a number of accounts and good histories of the crisis and the coup. And this book is, it's the first, I would say, truly international account that draws in Iranian, American, British sources, a certain number of Soviet sources where, where relevant, but you know, mostly we're working with British, American, and Iranian sources. A lot of what David just broke down, a lot of what he just explained, um, benefits from the declassification of CIA records in the 2017 Fruce retrospective volume, which we use heavily, we use heavily in this book, um, which contains a lot of phenomenal information and insight that did not exist prior to 2017. So this book, this book breaks a lot of new ground in exploring how particularly the U.S. government perceives Iran, how the U.S. government's position changes according to these political crises, according to the events of July 1952, February 1953. You know, crucial internal political changes in Iran affect the U.S. government in ways that, you know, previous scholarship on this subject hasn't really had a chance to cover because the documents didn't exist. So we were really, we were, you know, we were really fortunate in being able to use these new sources, not just the CIA sources in the 2017 Fruce volume, but also Iranian sources, memoirs, interviews that existed that speak to the Shah's state of mind, that speak to Mossadegh, Kashani, these other figures. You know, this book tries to draw in as many of these different sources as possible. And how did these new sources, Greg, you know, impact your understanding of you know, these events and, and really what laid the groundwork for the for the decision to for the coup? Well, I would say the new Fruce volume uh, that arrived in 2017, it didn't, to be perfectly honest, perfectly honest, it, it didn't offer any kind of smoking gun or groundbreaking change in the current understanding of the coup, right? There, there's lots of fantastic scholarship um, that existed that broke down how the coup took place, uh, how the different factions, how the different individuals 
involved, cooperated in August of 1953 to bring about Mossadegh's fall, like the breakdown of the events, the chain of events that led to the collapse of his government had been fairly well established uh, uh, before the the um, publication of the 2017 volume. What the 2017 volume and the new CIA documents really did for me, at least, was offer a lot of additional detail uh, as to the ways in which the thinking inside the U.S. government changed over the course of these years, how those changes were affected by the events of July 1952, what David just uh, just explained, Mossadegh's you know, resignation, the the tumult, the chaos that emerged on the streets of Iran, and then Mossadegh's return to power, uh, his return to power with greater powers. You know, he's able to to essentially dictate the laws for a while <laughs> inside Iran. He has more support. The Shah has been relegated to uh, to minor status. He's a minor political player after July 52. He's been reduced in influence and prestige. Uh, this is very alarming to the United States. As David mentioned, there's concerns that someone like Kashani, the Ayatollah Kashani, uh, would replace Mossadegh, and this would provide uh, inroads for the Tuda. There's concerns that uh, the continuation of the crisis means that Iran's oil won't flow in adequate volumes, that there won't be a resolution to the nationalization crisis, which could cause a financial or economic crisis inside Iran. This is something that you know was discussed prior, but which new documents, not only in the Fruits volume, but also documents that I found in the National Archives in College Park, these documents really spoke to the amount of concern that U.S. officials had uh, over what would happen if Iran remained oilless. In other words, if the oil industry was never reactivated, if Iran never again received revenues from the production and sale of oil, what that would mean to Iran's economy and the fiscal state of Iran's government. There was there were a lot of concerns about that, what that would mean, um, which created a lot of pressure to end the crisis. And up until 1953, the main way for the United States to end the crisis was through negotiation. Something that the new documents illustrate was in July of 52, when Mossadegh returns to power, the British say, we need to plan a coup. We need to work with elements in the military, uh, particularly a, a, figure known, a figure named uh, uh, Fazlullah Zahidi, who ends up being the sort of the leader of the coup of uh, August of 53. The British are turning to him for support. The Americans consider a coup. They think about it. The CIA thinks about it. The reason they decide not to go with a coup in the last six months of 1952 is they don't think it would work. They don't think there's a new figure. There's, they don't think there's a new leader who could replace Mossadegh and improve the situation. That position changes in 53, following a very long, prolonged and detailed round of oil negotiations, which the book covers, but which other accounts of this crisis generally glosses over. Uh, I think David would agree that the negotiations in December, January of uh, December 52, January 53 are some of the most important uh, that happened during this crisis. The United States decides to go with a coup after a prolonged period of discussions with the Mossadegh government and the British government. And it's made for a variety of different reasons. And it was very difficult to understand why the decision was made without these new documents, without the new light that's shed on the way the US government's position changes over the course of these months. Uh, and the final thing I'll say is, I think it's very important to engage with Iranian sources on this issue. 
Uh, and we do that to the best of our ability. We draw in memoirs and interviews. We draw in scholarship on the life and experiences, not only of Mossadegh on the Shah, but other figures who are active. We try to offer as much detail and as much context on the internal Iranian political situation as we can, because you can't understand the course of the nationalization crisis or the coup without understanding what's actually happening inside Iran. In that regard, you know, the when Greg just mentioned those negotiations the U.S. did in, in late uh, 52 and early 53, and they don't come to a successful conclusion, mainly because the British don't want them to. The British uh, hold up on everything, and, the, and the, the Americans can't get the British to change their mind on a couple of key issues. But then there's also a political crisis uh, at the same time in February 53. And in some ways, what happened in February 53 was almost a uh, dress rehearsal <laughs> for later. It wasn't very well organized. Uh, uh, it didn't, did not succeed. Uh, but, they, they, you know, they almost uh, assassinated uh, Mossadegh. In February, uh, he's leaving uh, the palace and a mob, uh, you know, attacks his home and he has to escape. Uh and this is sort of a turning point because he. This is when he. The people try to convince the Shah. It's now you have to choose. It's either Mossadegh or the Shah. You can't have both. And they, they, you know, when I say you have to choose, the Americans have to choose, the Iranian people have to choose, and the Shah has to choose. So this February crisis could not be understood without the new documents that Greg uh, talks about because. The previous foreign relations volume, all of those, many of those crucial documents, both for July twenty, uh, uh, July nineteen fifty two, and then February fifty three, were um, kept out of the volumes. Uh, you couldn't understand it uh, w- without those, and those are uh, those are very important. You know, you know, when I started on this a long time ago. And at, at first, there was the problem of sources, but you know, usually you think the problem sources we don't have enough sources, and that's true. We didn't have enough sources on political relations and covert action, but we, in some cases, we had too many sources uh, on the oil negotiations. I mean, there were so many sources. The amount of files in in the British National Archives on this crisis is it's just immense. And, you know, I mean, I don't know anybody who's gone through all of them (laughs) and you can go and you keep on and, you know, at some point something else will pop up. Uh, The thing that that strikes me that popped up, there was always this claim that Mossadegh agreed to uh, settle nationalization on the basis of the British coal mining uh, uh, nationalization in 1945 and then changed his mind when he found out that that act provided compensation for lost uh, uh, for, for the loss of uh, reserves. Actually, the British read the and Mossadegh, as Greg pointed out, was an international lawyer. He knew what the British that yes, it did provide uh, compensation because the British uh, coal mine owners owned the reserves that were their property, so they were compensated for the loss of future profits. In the Iranian case the British did not own the oil until it came out of the ground. That's the way most concessions ran. So the underground reserves were not British property. And the British lawyers, a foreign foreign office lawyer pointed out, hey, we could lose this case in court. 
because, you know, we can't ask for compensation for losing these reserves because we did not own them. Uh, so, you know, those, that's a little, that's a minor point, but it goes to the point that the, the, the misunderstanding, uh, and this, you know, we don't do a lot of this, but the cultural misunderstanding, the cultural condescension uh, uh, of the British and the Americans about the Iranians. I, I often, I used to talk a lot about U.S. policy being distorted by unconscious ethnocentric arrogance. And um, the more you read some of these documents, uh, the, the British, uh, their policy is distorted by conscious ethnocentric arrogance. Uh, and, you know, you they're, it, you know, they just, um, but, you know, that that's colored, it, you know, I think some of the people who dealt with Mossadegh, uh, George Middleton, who wants a coup, but he also says he liked Mossadegh, that Mossadegh was a rational, good person, uh, but, you know, he's in the way of the uh, the British national interest. The, the understanding afterwards, the, you know, I think some of the people involved maybe didn't have as much of that arrogance as some of the people who interpreted it from afar, either from other parts of the government, uh, from public opinion. Uh, I mean, you know, some of the, the coverage in American newspapers is, is very, by the end of the crisis, very condescending. Some of those stories are, in fact, planted by the CIA uh, and British Petroleum, I mean, excuse me, Anglo-Iranian actually had an office in New York City that worked to influence American media and American media's understanding uh, of the crisis. So there's, you know, there's a lot going on. Uh, I think that's why we called our chapter, you know, history and memory, you know, how memory, how the memories of the crisis have been distorted uh, uh, over time and trying to get that straight history and contestant memories. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting um exercise and how you try to understand uh, the past and what you have to bring in and how things that have happened later come back. Sometimes perspective is important, historical perspective. You look back and you can understand it. And sometimes there's uh, what people call contaminated memories. Uh, people's memories are contaminated by later events and by later efforts to distort what happened. This sort of understanding. Right. Uh, something I'd like to get both of your perspectives on as we're coming to the end of our conversation. Um, I don't want to talk about the events of the coup itself because people can obviously read the book for that. But something I wanted to ask you both is why, you know, decades and decades after this event has occurred, uh, you know, I guess it's 70 years now this year. Why has this taken on such uh, an outsized role in, in U.S.-Iranian relations still? And, and why does it still really have a um, an important hold on, I think, the way that we understand the evolution of American foreign policy? Because, you know, there are a lot of events that we can talk about um, in the history of, of American foreign relations after World War II that could, you know, play similar roles. But, but the 1953 coup is, is one of those ones that, you know, constantly comes up. And I was wondering if you guys could talk about why you think we've have, why on both sides, we still have very strong memories of this event. Well, I'll go first, David, if you don't mind. Um, and I'll say, I'll say, first of all, that, you know, it's, it's hard to 
it's hard to overstate the significance of the 53 coup in modern Iranian history. It's still an event that is referenced all the time in Iranian political discourse uh, and just general discourse. Uh, it's not it's not as simple as sometimes it's argued 1953, the coup of 1953 that put the Shah in power led to the Islamic Revolution 25 years later. Now, that's a, that's a difficult claim to make because the, the events are separated by so much time. Um, it certainly, however, is important in understanding U.S.-Iranian relations, in understanding the uh, suspicion, the hostility, the fear that influences both sides uh, when it comes to understanding the relationship. I mean, the United States had played a crucial role in organizing the overthrow of the Mossadegh government and in supporting the Shah in the immediate aftermath of the coup uh, and in continuing to support the Shah over the subsequent 25 years. If you understand the revolution of 1978-79, you know, not only as the movement to create a new government for Iran, but primarily as a revolt against the rule of the Shah, which is how I often uh, uh, emphasize it, uh, how I often like to, to understand it. it. It's it's very, very important to understand why so many domestic political actors within Iran organized to remove the Shah in 78-79, because in many ways they viewed him as a foreign puppet, as someone who the United States had placed in a position of power. Um, and that legacy continues to crop up uh, in political discourse. It continues to serve an important role in the mythologizing, in the legitimizing discourse of the Islamic uh, state, or rather the Islamic Republic of Iran today. So the 53 coup is crucial to understanding modern Iranian history and modern uh, uh, Iranian politics. Um, I will also say, you know, in connection to what David just summarized, the memory of the coup, the history of the coup has been contested and argued and debated uh, for decades now, in large case, in large, in, in many cases, because so many of the documents, the sources that we needed to understand the coup did not exist or had not been declassified, but also because the coup matters to so many. It matters to uh, the people of Iran. It matters to the different political factions within Iran, both in the, the days of the Shah and uh, under the current regime. It matters to uh, the diaspora of Iranians who live outside of Iran, uh, who are, you know, very, very organizing, who are very organized, who are very active right now uh, in the protest movement. Uh, this legacy of the United States putting uh, a monarch in power and overthrowing, a, a, if not a democratically elected, then certainly a democratically inclined government represented by the Mossadegh uh, government in 53. You know, that continues to draw uh, considerable significance. Um, within Iranian political discourse. So it you can't really understand Iran's modern history without understanding the coup. And I would argue, and the, the nationalization crisis, and I don't think you can really understand how the United States fits within Iranian history without understanding both the coup and the crisis that took place around it. I would say it also shapes the... You know, this uh, U.S. role in the coup, uh, this was uh, not the first time, but it certainly one of the first major CIA operations. And then you have one you know, a year later in Guatemala and you have so many. Uh, this sort of shaped the way, uh, especially the Eisenhower administration of the U.S., you know, approached uh, governments uh, that the U.S. did not agree with. It shaped the history of the oil industry. Uh, you know, the, the, the British uh, had monopolized uh, control of Iranian oil. Afterwards, there's a consortium. Now, the British get paid handsomely. They, they used to, to cry about how they lost, you know, they lost 
you know, they had 40% and they'd had 100%. And the answer was, well, you, you, when the, the coup happened, you had zero and you ended up with 40, so you came out ahead. But this shapes the, this shapes the oil industry too, because this brings the, all the seven sisters together in one company, along with the French company. You know, this is the high point of control of international oil. Uh, the, the example of overthrowing uh, a government that nationalized, uh, you know, that set a precedent for a long time. Uh, you know, the Mexicans had succeeded at high cost. They, when they nationalized in 1938, uh, you know, we did not go in and try to overthrow the Mexican government. They, they boycotted it and, you know, kept them out of the international oil uh, economy for a long time. Uh, but this, you know, this sets a precedent uh, in that sense. It's also a set of precedent in Anglo-American relations. You know, this is a part of a gradual process by which the U.S. replaces the British as the main foreign power operating in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf. However, initially... The British think, well, you know, the Americans were difficult, but eventually they acquiesced and they let us do it. And, you know, I like the, the uh, to say this puts the British on the slippery slope to Suez. <laughs> they think, well, the Americans will uh, complain. They won't like what we're doing. But if we go on and do what we need to do, they will back us. Um, did not work out that way <laughs> in 1956. So, you know, this has a huge impact in so many different areas on American coal, uh, uh, on American policy during the Cold War, on relations uh, between the industrialized countries and the global south, uh, uh, relationship of oil and other extractive industries and industry in general uh, from the industrialized countries and the global south, and also uh, with the history and gradual decline of the British Empire in the Middle East and in general, not to mention, as what Greg has laid out so so well, the implications and the consequences within Iran itself. So this is, I think uh, we say it's a pivotal moment in the history of the post-1945 world. And it's one uh, that I think it's very important to understand uh, something that we couldn't, uh, we can always learn more, uh, hopefully understanding it will improve uh, policy. Uh, but if you don't understand it, uh, you'll be in much worse shape. Absolutely. I think that's a great place uh, for us to end. So thank you so much, David and Greg, for coming on and talking with us about the book. I um, thought that was an excellent conversation. The book is The Struggle for Iran, Oil, Autocracy, and the Cold War. It was published or it's been published with the University of North Carolina Press, and it is available now. So thank you all for tuning in and we'll be back with you soon. Thanks everyone. Bye for now. Thank you. Thank you.